everyone. This is the Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that the Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com, under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. But first, let me put in a good word for Blueberry Podcasting. I'm a Blueberry affiliate, but that's not the only reason I'm telling you this. I've been using Blueberry Podcasting as my hosting service for my podcast for years, and it's one of the best decisions I ever made. They give great customer service. You're in complete control of your own podcast. You can run it from your own website. And it just takes a lot of the work out of podcasting for me. I find for that reason that it's a company that I can get behind 100% and say, you should try this. Try Blueberry. It doesn't require a long-term contract, and it's just a great company, period. And it also has free technical support by email, video, and phone. So you can get a human being there. Isn't that nice? Hi, everyone. Our guest today is the Edgar Award-winning author of multiple mystery series and noir short stories. Her first historical mystery, Clark and Division, won a Mary Higgins Clark Award and follows a Japanese-American family's move to Chicago in 1944, after being released from a wartime detention center. She's also written numerous nonfiction books and a middle grade novel. It's my pleasure to have as my guest, Naomi Hirahara. Hi, Naomi, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing well, thanks for having me, Debbie. That's my pleasure, believe me. Um, you seem to have several series going. How many series do you have? And um, which one did you start with? Well, my first one was my Masarai mystery series, and it's uh, um, aging Los Angeles gardener and Hiroshima survivor who solves crimes. It's an homage to my own father. It's not my father, but inspired by someone like him. And that went for seven books. And actually two of my series, they've only made it as far as being duologies. Um, one is uh, the Ellie Rush um, Bicycle Cop Mysteries, and there's a Leilani Santiago um, uh, Shave Ice Mysteries. I, I guess we're calling that um, the Leilani Santiago Hawaii Mysteries set on the island of Kauai. And more recently, I've changed to um, historical mysteries, and um, we've called it because you know, publishers like series, but it's loosely linked. It's called the Japantown Mysteries. And as you mentioned, Clark and Division is the first. The second just came out, Evergreen, and it'll be followed with a third one, but not from that main character's point of view, but another character. Huh, interesting. So it's it's like the, the same world, but a different character. Exactly. And it's actually even a different time period. So the third one will be set in 1903. Huh. So you go back in time. <laughs> exactly. I wanted that latitude. Um, 
to jump around. And in terms of Clark and Division and Evergreen, I thought I look at it as bookends to um, my lead character, Aki Ito, her kind of resettlement story. And, mm -hmm. and I didn't want her to turn her into an amateur sleuth where she's investigating like random incidents. Um, the two um, storylines in both books are deeply personal. So I kind of wanted to, you know, her story to end with those with Evergreen. Yeah, yeah, interesting. It it's fascinating because I don't I can't think offhand of another series where people go backward in time. <laughs> yeah, I mean Tana Tanya French she has her uh, Dublin murder mysteries which go but that's all in the same like investigative unit and it's different characters all in that same unit. But yeah, it it should be interesting. You know, I'm all for like stretching the rules so we'll, you know and I think it'll work out I love that I love stretching the rules that's great <laughs> let's see uh so I was going to talk about Leilani Santiago because I read the first book in that dual set and I see you have a follow-up to that um what was it that um inspired you to write about Hawaii during the pandemic in that first one yeah, well, the um, the first one was before the pandemic, and the second one, in Eternal Lay, took place in the pandemic, um, and it just it was just a question of timing, um, because and I asked that was published by a small press called Prospect Park Books, and it's since been acquired by a Nashville-based um, publisher, but my publisher uh, and editor, Colleen Dunbate, she loves Kauai and she loves Hawaii. And I guess it was about, you know, 20, I was writing it about, I believe around 2020, uh, around that time, 2021. And uh, uh, no, yeah, 2020. And I was asking Colleen, you know, because the people have different opinions on whether you should especially something that's more cozy-ish, should you set it in the pandemic or not? Because a lot of people, that's the last thing they would want to read. But in talking it over with Colleen, we just knew the pandemic was like a seismic shift in terms of tourism and life in Hawaii. And I really kind of needed to go there. And I'm glad I did because... Um, you know, tourism fell by, you know, 80%. And it was kind of like a different type of Hawaii. So it almost became like a locked uh, room mystery. Like, mm. because not that many people are coming from the outside, like who committed, who is this woman, you know, this mysterious woman that was found in the ocean in Waimea Bay, you know, where did she come from? And um, it was, it was actually kind of nice to have a lot of uh, limitations um, to, you know, where where this this mysterious person victim came from. So um, yeah, I, I I was very happy to do it. Of course, I couldn't go to Hawaii at that point, but there was so you know with the internet where I could watch Hawaii news right on YouTube, 
and just um, the mayor of Kauai was putting out TikTok videos. So a lot of the act, and then there was a lot of people getting arrested for arriving um, um, on the island when they shouldn't have been. So, you know, even though I couldn't actually travel there, there was a lot of ways to see what was going on. Fascinating. And what a setting. I mean, like you said, almost like a locked room mystery. Um, I never think about that aspect of Hawaii, how isolated it must be or can be under certain circumstances. Yeah, and, uh, and because so much of the industry is around tourism, you know, that um, many of the small businesses had took a very big financial hit. But then there's also people, and we kind of see that through the um, investigation of the Maui fires, you know, the um, impact of tourism on the islands too. So there's people who really, you know, they call it the aina, you know, they want to um, preserve the land. So there's this natural tension of people um, trying to promote tourism and people trying to keep it um, among Native Hawaiians. So, you know, with mysteries, we need we need conflict. So it's kind of built in. Absolutely, yeah. Um, before you uh, started writing fiction, you were a journalist. And uh, then you became an editor, correct? That is correct. Do you feel that it's, these experiences helped you as a writer? Oh, most definitely. Um, I mean, these days, unfortunately, so many news outlets have closed. So, but, you know, when I, I'm in my early, I'm 61 right now, but when I was um, establishing myself as a writer in my 20s, so that's like in the 1980s, it was still a viable way to make a living. Um, and I think it's also, I I was an avid reader of uh, Writer's Digest magazine, and Larry Block had a, a column in the back, like one page, and um, one of his columns was, what are the best occupations, um, you know, as you're emerging or developing as a writer, and he was saying, one is, um, have a job where you talk to various people, you know, and check, you know, being a reporter, I was at an ethnic newspaper, a Japanese-American newspaper that was right next to like Skid Row and um, City Hall. So, yep, I talked to a wide variety of people. I think the second um, kind of job is, he said, to get a job where you actually are writing and it doesn't have to be fiction, but to help hone your craft and check, you know, that's what you're doing as a reporter. And you can't wait for the muse to hit you, right? Because often people ask, well, where, what's your, you know, writing space or what do you do? And as a reporter, you, and those were the days that we really didn't, we couldn't reply on, um, we couldn't use the internet. I mean, we couldn't depend on that. So I was filing stories like all over the phone, you know, so it was really fast paced. And I think that was helpful to kind of, because I, except for when the pandemic came, I really didn't have any problems with writer's block. And I think this, the third kind of job um, Larry Block recommended was a job where, oh, you make the most amount of money for the least amount of effort, you know, and 
of course, journalism is not that kind of job, but um, I did other things later. So I heeded his uh, his rec advice in all three areas. Yes, excellent advice too. Uh, let's see. What are you working on now? Is the third book in the uh, series? Yes, I am working on the third book. And it's, of course, since it's, in 1903, there's a lot of research, and it's set, luckily, where I live and grew up, uh, Pasadena, California, and I'm just having a blast um, doing a deep dive. Uh, you know, I need the Clark and Division and Evergreen um, investigated the resettlement of Japanese Americans um, to different places because of uh, the war World War II, you know, forced removal and incarceration, you know, which is a dark subject. Um, and I needed to lighten it up. And so I'm now looking more as uh, of the aesthetics of like a place like Pasadena, where it, you know, we're kind of the center of the arts and crafts movement. So I get to look at really pretty buildings and look at, go to museums and looking at, look at paintings. And it's it's been really fun and delightful. And um, I have to, you know, work in um, some kind of mystery. Um, I, I was at Poison Pen um, Bookstore recently, and I was talking to Barbara Peters, and she, you know, I always said, I was like cavalierly saying, I have to find a dead bob body, you know, to put in my mystery. It's going to be Crown City, which was the name of Pasadena back then. And, and um, Barbara says, well, you don't have to have a dead body necessarily. You don't have to have a murder. And I go, that's true. So um, yeah, so I'm kind of, you know, trying to get, I'm getting my characters in order. I'm getting a potential um, person who's going to encounter trouble, but I'm thinking maybe, maybe this one won't be a murder. I'm not sure. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It doesn't always have to be a murder. There can be other crimes that are committed that are about as serious and uh, in their own way. Um, let's see, how much research do you do for these historicals? There must be some research that goes into this. It There's a lot because I really, I, I'm kind I'm investigating parts of our history that haven't been told. And uh, actually if it can be found in like a secondary research, uh, resource, like a history book, I'm not interested. I want to come up with some um, original research that perhaps cannot be told in a nonfiction book because there's too many gaps. So being the, a mystery writer, and of course there has to, in most cases, there has to be some kind of criminal element. But um, so as a mystery writer, I could swoop in and imagine and connect the dots um, but, um, I will say actually technology has make it, made it easier. Um, for instance, in Evergreen, it takes place in 1946, Los Angeles. And, um, I have worked in my old, old newspaper. It's called the Rafu Shimpo in there. It originally had started in 1903. And during the war, of course, it had to close, but it reopened in 1946, January 1st. So I've been able through um, my library card from Los Angeles Public Library 
to go into the database and look over each, you know, issue. I probably didn't look at over each one, but it's also keyword searchable. And so it's been wonderful to have resources like that, that um, provide kind of a chronology. And, you know, I, I have manipulated some of the dates, but um, I've in the notes in the back of the book, I've noted what I've done. So um, it's as clean as possible. But it's just um, a framework where I could hang my particular fictional book on. And it's a wonderful way actually to introduce people to his, you know, I'm already getting comments like, I never knew that about Los Angeles, you know, during that time. And maybe these readers would not have picked up a nonfiction book on the same topic, but if you know, if it's a mystery, it's um, with a character that they like to follow, you know, they'll, they'll go with it. Yes. Isn't it great when you can um, learn something from a book as well as be entertained by it? I love that. Um, what authors have most inspired your writing? Mm, I think um, probably... Uh, for the types of mysteries I write, um, a lot of African-American detective novelists, including Chester Himes. And um, there's actually a tie-in to, I, I tip my hat to him in Evergreen too, based um, during when he was writing, um, when he hollers, let him go, one of his um, mysteries, he was living in Los Angeles in a community called Boy Heights. And that's where I set Evergreen. And he was actually living in the home of a family, a Japanese American family that had been sent away. So I kind of worked that, you know, he's not present in the book, but he's definitely mentioned. Um, and Walter Mosley. Um, before that, I mean, in high school, um, actually, probably the play Death of a Salesman um, was pretty integral because it was like a, an everyman kind of an anti-hero. And I didn't realize until then that you could have, you know, an anti-hero be, you know, the, the star um, protagonist of, of your tale. And I think that opened the door for me to write a character like Masarai, a gardener. Hmm. I also noticed from your bio your uh, family history, uh, clearly, it would seem, plays a part in your writing. Uh, you said a lot of it is very personal. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I I can't help um, but always root for the underdog. And I think it is because my own father, you know, was a working class, you know, was a guard. I mean, on the West Coast, especially in Southern California, um, you know, one out of 10 gardeners um, after World War II were of Japanese descent. And that's because they were either released from camp and could not be employed, you know, by any other place, or they had, you know, come from Japan and they couldn't speak English well. So, um, but then my, I was very close to my father. I thought my father, he was very philosophical. He was smart. He just couldn't speak English that well. And he couldn't speak Japanese that well too, because he was born here, but um, raised in Japan and came back. 
So I think those kinds, you know, I always felt like, hey, you know, someone like my father's being disrespected, or I think he has things that would help us as a community. Um, so he just, I mean, it's kind of similar to what Walter Mosley does. I think he's trying to create African-American male heroes. And in Masurai, that was my attempt to do, to create a Japanese-American one. Walter Mosley and Chester Hines are two of my favorite writers. <laughs> I have to say, I love them both. Um, oh, Veronica Gutier Gutierrez says hello. <laughs> she yeah, was on we're, last, last time. <laughs> I saw that. I'm so happy. Yeah, we're kind of traveling in the same geographic terrain. And um, I haven't had a chance to really talk to her much. So I'm really happy to be going about your con in Sandy. It's funny, like you could be in close proximity, but then you have to go somewhere else, you know, two hours away to actually talk. So actually, I'm really, yeah. <laughs> really happy to, to get to, yeah, talk to her more. And my husband will be with me and he's from Boyle Heights. So I'm sure they'll have a lot to share with one another. Cool. Um... What advice, apart from what Lawrence Block had to say, would you give to writers who are interested in making a living, a career out of writing? Mm, diversify um, and don't say no <laughs> to certain <laughs> things. I mean, you can't, I, I'm a, at this point in my life, I am saying no, but I think when you're starting out, you, you just consider. Like I've done family memoirs and there came to be a point, you know, that I was, you know, receiving more income from writing fiction. And I said, oh, I'll do no more family memoirs. But I soon learned I couldn't close that door. And um, I'm actually just, I just recently finished up a, a memoir for a family. And, you know, every type of writing, um, when you're interviewing someone who, you know, with a different kind of life, I mean, that's kind of opening the door for you to perhaps write a fictional character, you know, that um, I'm not saying to steal that person's life, but you you have a better understanding of, you know, especially maybe someone who lived in another country that you, you really haven't spent much time, you know, kind of um, opens um, our world. So I, yeah, so whatever kind of writing it may be, um, I, I say be open. I'm so glad that I do nonfiction um, and fiction because there's been times where, you know, maybe you're not, you're kind of wondering about your contract, you know, um, for one of your fiction books, but then you, you start, you know, you're able to make money through another project. And I think it just um, makes you, you know, feel secure. It's not good to right out of desperation. So I think, um, yeah, just be flexible, but I think it's hard for people who can't juggle because um, it's not for everyone. Some people are more like linear wor uh, workers. They need to, you know, from A to B to B to C to C to D. So if you're able to kind of multitask and go from A to D to B, you know, it that's, you know, an advantage that can really help you sustain um, a writer's life. I agree completely. That's great advice. 
I always think of it as compartmentalizing. You know, it's like, okay, I have this thing I have to work on. Now there's this other thing I have to work on. They involved different parts of my brain, but, you know, I can do them. Um, let's see. Oh, is there anything else uh, you would like to add before we finish up? Um, not really. Just, yeah, I, I don't. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> well, it was my pleasure. Believe me, it was great to see you and great to meet you and um, get to talk to you about your books because they Thank sound you. fantastic. I know I love the one about Hawaii that I read. <laughs> so now I have to read the one about that uh, bike bicycle cop. <laughs> I think you enjoy. Yeah, it's uh, called You're on Bamboo Lane. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I love the idea of a bicycle cop in J Japan town. Wonderful. Uh, let's see. On that note, I'll just say thanks to everyone who's listening or watching. And uh, I want to especially thank my supporters on Patreon, where patrons have access to ad-free episodes. Let's see. Serial versions of my work, serialized versions of my work, plus that they are in text and audio, some of them. And um, also, I have a new shop which anybody can visit, whether you're a patron or not. So visit my Patreon page. I'll include a link below. Uh, our next guest next time will be Jenny Briscoe. So until then, take care and happy reading.